Welcome, this is According to Callus, and this is going to be part five of the Magdeburg Mondays. And you may wonder, well, what happened? Well, I just had a really busy week last week, and I could not make it happen. There were other things going on, of course, because that's just the way it is, and you just never really know what's going to happen. So, as I move forward here into the what it was planned to be the final episode, right? Part 5 of Magdeburg Monday. I look at the book. <laughs> the reality is I'm only two-thirds of the way through. However, there are a ton of footnotes and references. So as we jump into episode 143, part 5 of Magdeburg Mondays, I don't know. I might end up with a bonus episode. Here we go. This is the first argument from definition. The magistrate is an ordinance of God for honor to good works and a terror to evil works. And if that sounds familiar, that's because it's from Romans 13. And for decades, we've been hearing how Romans 13 basically tells us we are to do what everything we should we are to do whatever government tells us and everything that they tell us so long as it is a not a direct contradiction of the word of god we are to do without question without fail well let's see where they go with this therefore when he begins to be a terror to good works and an honor to evil there is no longer in him because he does thus the ordinance of god ooh but the ordinance of the devil. So there we go. As soon as the magistrate violates the, the job, right? He violates the trust that he has. As soon as he violates the office as ordained by God, he or she gives up their authority. So, when you resist, it's necessary that you uh, resist in your own station, right? Well, you need to call in another magistrate, one of superior or equal to the, the person that is inflicting the harm, or of the inferior who suffers the harm, who is himself the ordinance of God, though the superior... To be an honor to good works and terror to evil in his defense of his own citizens by a command of God. Now, I know some of you are already checking out because this sounds a little confusing. It sounds challenging of what we've been taught. And those of you that are not Christians that maybe stumbled onto my uh, podcast here, welcome. And let me just say that you too benefit from us upholding the doctrine of lesser magistrates. Because we believe in defense of liberty of the minority, not only the dictation of the majority, which is also referenced as being mob rule, particularly uh, shortly thereafter, the, or the Roman times. So, we go back. When, moreover, he deposes an inferior magistrate who is unwilling to obey him in such a crime and replace him with someone who is willing, by that very fact, 
He now honors and promotes evil works and dishonors and destroys God. So that's a that's a uh, tough tough thing there. They they they've put down the line in the sand here, right? So consider you have a higher magistrate who is violating the ordinance of God, right? He's he's honoring evil. He's not doing good works. He's not protecting the good people of his charge. And a lesser magistrate steps in and says, hey, uh, superior magistrate, uh, you're out of line here. You have no business doing this. Um, I'm, I'm going to impose or I'm going to interposition myself or oppose your actions here. And then if he gets removed... That's even more evidence that the higher magistrate is violating the ordinance of God. But if of the inferior magistrates, the more important and the greatest number of themselves also neglect to do their duty, they admit a great crime by their negligence. So in other words, if the lesser magistrate isn't willing to step up and say, uh, no, higher magistrate, you're wrong. You have no business doing this and you're violating your charge. They've also failed. So, again, now they're going to quote uh, 1 Peter 2, which, again, we've heard for decades. Let's see what they do with this. 1 Peter 2 properly pertains to the situation. Let servants be subject to their masters with all fear, not only to the good and modest ones, but also to the ill-tempered, etc. Here we make a broader application of what is written in Exodus 22. You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And with that, they treated their father, okay, or the irreverence, or right, that um, it just uses a reference of Noah. Here we go. Um, there's atrocious, notorious injuries, and we're going to go in and reference different things from Caesar. Um, so then we're going to get to a third degree of injury to a magistrate, which is in which an inferior magistrate is so forced to certain sin that he is not able to suffer it with sin if defense is omitted for the sake of which he himself bears the sword. So when Pharaoh orders the midwives to kill the male children of the Hebrews, or if he were to order Moses to aid the persecution of the Israelites, there is a need for accurate and true judgment. Lest in beating back the injury, other higher laws be violated. So basically, it says you better make darn sure you're right. These last two kinds, the magistrates who are the authors of such industry, injuries, may properly become and be called tyrants. The fourth and highest level of injury by superiors is more than tyrannical. It is when tyrants begin to be so mad that they persecute with guile in arms, not so much the just persons of inferior magistrates, and their subjects, but it's their right in itself, especially if the right in the highest and most necessary rank that they persecute God. Okay, the author in such persons, a sudden and momentary theory. Okay, this is just going to get a little more complicated. So, <clears throat> so as the devil, by this government of his desires, the execution of the whole chain of knowledge of laws and divine promises. So what they're saying is when they go off the rails, 
they uh, they need to be reined in. Uh, there's a little bit more, but again, that, now we're going to get into kind of the high Lutheran version of what's going on here. So uh, I'm going to fast forward here just a little bit. Here we go. <clears throat> so uh, the final paragraph of the first argument was taken up from the manifest word of God, from the immutable principles of nature and from the witness of events, so that is it especially true and unshakable in this debate. It furnishes an illustrated spectacle of incalculably horrendous crime among our enemies, while among those who are making this defense, it commands not only their justice but zeal as well. It promises eternal rewards with a worthy outcome for those who are zealous for the law of God. Our God, excuse me. <clears throat> the second argument. When Christ commands with an affirmative and clear inference that the things which are Caesar's ought to be rendered unto Caesar and the things that which are God's to be rendered to God, we rightfully infer from the affirmative a negative. Likewise, by clear interference. Indeed, I apologize for that. This comes to the concept where we must obey God rather than men. And by refusing obedience to superiors in these things which are contrary to God, they do not violate the majesty of their superiors, nor can they be judged obstinate or rebellious. As Daniel says, I have committed no crime against you, O king, for two reasons free them to, from this charge. First, because those who wield the magistracy do not demand the obedience as magistrates by the ordinance of God, but as men, that is, having no superiority from the word of God, the apostles appear to have wanted to judge this case by their own dictum. Then, even if they remained true magistrates, even still, as the human ranks, the law of superior power trumps the law of the inferior, so divine laws necessarily trump human ones. Secondly, as Christ does not want the things of God to be ascribed to Caesar, so he does not want the things ascribed to him, Caesar, that are others and not his, whether according to divine laws or even the laws of his own empire. If contrary to these laws, Caesar should demand my life or some other man's life or the chastity of a wife or daughter or property, etc., I ought to not allow them to him. Thus, there was no price whatsoever. Naboth would willingly sell his vineyard to King Ahab. That's in First Kings, in case you were not aware. So, again, if it is within the proper theory, or I'm sorry, the proper authority of the king or magistrate, yes, then we defer to them. If it's outside of that, there is the problem here. Now, our friends, the Presbyterians, and I'm sure there's other sects, sects, S-E-C-T-S, that subscribe to the idea of a sphere of authority, right? So you've got your ecclesiastical or church authority, your secular or um, temporal authority, and then you've got the authority of the family. Now, this is my interpretation of what their actual teaching is, but it's pretty darn close. I'm just trying to simplify it, right? So... You have your family authority, right? Father, mother, children, and then reference it back up to um, elders, right? Then you've got the government 
authority, right? Their sphere of authority. And then you have the church. Or if you were want biblical uh, God-ordained authority. So the three interact and support one another, but typically defer to the others in their spheres. But they also inform the other spheres of what's the proper role. Particularly when it's coming from the ecclesiastical side. Um, as a parent, I don't want the government to come in and tell me how to raise my children. I'm not enthusiastic about a church coming in and trying to tell me how to run my children. But if I am a member of that church and I believe as that church teaches, that would be an appropriate role for the church to take on. If I don't belong to that church, then obviously they would have no authority within my home. Likewise, the church doesn't get dictated to by individual people or families most of the time, and they shouldn't be dictated to by government, secular government. And you may recall we had a little bit of this interaction going on earlier this last year. And thirdly, government, while by being informed by both the family government and the church government, is supposed to be a separate entity on purpose, by design, to prevent tyranny and overreach. Unfortunately, sometimes in the history of our uh, society, of Western culture, we have seen where the two have overlapped, overridden, and one side or the other was uh, taking the lead, and it never really works out so well for those people that are in that particular society. Fortunately, we avoided most of that in this country when we founded it as the colonies. They had their own individual state churches, but not a federal church. And they did not want a federal church because they didn't want to cede that authority. And those churches of the state, if you will, were phased out over time. Whether or not that was the best idea in the world, uh, that's debatable, but at least... That's the process that was followed here. And the idea was, is that if you are a devout Christian, you'll behave in a certain way and you'll teach your children a certain way so that less law and less government would be necessary. But as the church retreated, there became more. Okay, now I'm getting too far ahead of myself here. Let's go back to the script here, which is the Magdeburg uh, confession here. So, they throw in a few more definitions, and then we get to the third. Just as Christ was clear by inference, orders the things of Caesar be rendered unto Caesar, and to God the things that are God's, likewise all men and things that are theirs. So when Caesar demands that, you don't have to give it to him. And fourth, Christ, by the same sentence, render unto Caesar, the things which are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God, he subjects other men to Caesar. So he both subjects both them and Caesar to himself, being that he's God, and wishes the greatest power among men, as is the power of Caesar, to be especially subservient to God, by taking care that just as Caesar is himself, so the rest of the subjects under his power should render to God things that are God's according to his word. Now, this should restrain those who would do otherwise, but apparently not. So, it is proper in the principal job of a Christian magistrate, especially that of the highest prince, 
is here that roughly indicated that is proved more clearly in other ways by our testimonies, arguments, and examples from the word of God. Therefore, when the highest prince himself does not render to God the things that are God, but snatches the divine other honor from others on the pretext of his power and claims it for himself by the sword, then there nonetheless remains among men this very power ordained by God to vindicate the honor of God. Thus, when Caesar is dead, the rest of the princes and states under him will all use in their own place as much as Caesar's power has been transferred to them. That's pretty uh, tough there. Let me take a second and let that sink in. And now that you've had a moment to think on that, in the Psalms, there is a relevant statement. I have said you are gods, yet you will die like men. That is, when you abandon my ordinance by which I have set over you, you are, that I have sent you over other men to bear my authority among them, honoring good works and punishing evil, and devote yourselves to the shameful acts like the rest of the evil men, then, because you have no grounds for your majesty or power, you will be punished just as they are. So, that is the way they're reminding the king or the prince or the magistrate that you are also subject to God, and you can't avoid that consequence. Now, again, if you don't subscribe to that, you're thinking this is kind of falling on deaf ears. But again, let me finish. <clears throat> the third argument. If God wanted superior magistrates who have become tyrants to be inviolable because of his ordinance and commandment, how many impudious and absurd things would follow from this? Chiefly, it would follow that God, by his own ordinance and command, in strength, is strengthening, nay, honoring and abetting evil works, and is hindering, nay, destroying good works, and that there are contraries in the nature of God itself. In this ordinance, by which he has instructed the magistrate, that God is no less against his own ordinance than he is for the human race. So basically, they're using an argument of logic here that... God doesn't allow the magistrate to do whatever he wants because if he's doing the wrong thing, then he would be arguing that God is allowing him to do the wrong thing and approving of the wrong thing, and clearly that be, can't be the case. So, these cannot be denied. So, the the, the logic behind this is that we can't have two opposing views going on. All right, so again, it's going to get into some uh, very much Lutheran stuff, particularly referencing uh, our friends, the Catholics, and uh, we're going to try and go forward here. So here we go. Um, God has always punished wicked men, and especially tyrants, partly without the ministry of men, but by his own various means, some secret, others open, and partially through the instrumentality of men. In other words, he can do it however he wants. Again, sometimes he punishes the wicked themselves by the means of the wicked, but ordinarily he does so through those who are called to exercise just punishment. According to what is said about homicides, whose Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Kind of echoes an eye for an eye, but that's from Genesis 9. This means of carrying out punishment and driving off unjust violence is divine and belongs to the magistrates, whether to the superior against the inferior or to an equal against another equal or to an inferior against a superior. 
God has shared this in his own honor with all legitimate magistrates. So, uh, I'm going to go jump a little bit further forward here. What an absurdity would it be for God to have made an ordinance of magistrates so holy and necessary for human race if one man should be in possession of it and should be able to ruin nearly everything by his own will when he is driven into a frenzy or turn the magistracy into an, the opposite. But if the rest of men are able or wish to preserve that ordinance by certain order without confusion, they should not be allowed by God. So again, basically saying the guy oversteps, he's doing all this crazy stuff. How would we not oppose that? Because he's clearly in violation of God's law. Now again, if you reject God, can't help you here. This is primarily aimed at those Christians who swear that Romans 13 forbids them from doing anything just as 2 Peter allegedly does. These are some Lutherans, some early Protestant reformers, if you will, that are re-picking up arguments from 500 years earlier, or in some cases, 1500 years earlier, saying that there is a distinct line of that which is acceptable for a king or an emperor or a prince to do so long as it doesn't violate these other things. And one of the major things is, is if they're violating God's law, if they're overstepping, being tyrannical, not following their own rules, then they need to be opposed. So, these are very strong arguments to prove that our necessary defense of an inferior magistrate against the superior in the present persecution of the gospel. They are also sufficiently powerful to educate the conscience of all pious and good men so that they may know all and each of the obligations of those who are ordered to train their weapons against the gospel of Christ or to beat back those weapons. So again, they're laying out this argument saying that because of what they're doing, they're going after the gospel. They're trying to basically prevent them from being able to exercise their faith. See why this is important now? They're overstepping. They're interfering with the free exercise of their faith. They're saying that they have now voided their authority by overstepping, by misbehaving, by interfering with the worship of God. Therefore, with the proper person in place, they can rightfully disagree and rightfully refuse to obey. Again, this is all built off of what Luther went through and some of the things that the Lutherans have been dealing with in their, let's call it negotiations with the Roman Catholic Church. So we're going to jump forward a little bit. Uh, last, if anyone requests examples of these sort of defense by inferiors against superiors, you'll find plenty and suitable ones enough. If he makes a summary of the deeds recorded in the sacred histories, ecclesiastical and pagan. So now they reference here the Maccabees and Jehu and Jonathan and you know Saul, Asa, Ambrose, even the Armenians. Uh, are referenced and <laughs> they talk about the most praiseworthy and powerful emperor Trajan so we're going to we're just going to hop in here just to see what they have to say because honestly it's been a month since I read this let's recap it the powerful emperor Trajan out of the innermost resources of natural law pronounces on this question of defense of by inferiors against superiors in political affairs when he 
appointed a master of the horse for himself. He handed a sword to him, saying, Use this sword against my enemies, if I give righteous commands. But if I give unrighteous commands, use it against me. This saying of celebrated and truly of the law of nature, and that is of the divine law. Therefore, just as Christ in the gospel does not abolish the knowledge or theoretical or practical principles or the law of God itself, but rather establishes it. As the apostle says, so neither does he abolish this opinion concerning necessary defense, but rather Christian magistrates may piously use it. Nay, they are under obligation to do so because of the commandment of God. And we have already demonstrated at length by our testimonies, arguments, and examples from the word of God. Final paragraph. If anyone thinks we have been too harsh in explaining these things, let him consider that Christ suffers much harsher things in the persecution. He demands that we have to testify to the truth in saying, which we have tempered our style, not a little, so that a wise and fair reader may easily notice that we not only wish to speak about these things themselves and to spare persons in so much as we could possibly have done, if we do not obtain peace, we are able to sharpen the things which have been said here, and we will add many others which tell heavily for our duty, even if the same reward awaits us in the world as the prophets, the Baptists, Christ, the apostles, and many others like them receive for their similar work. Now, there is a third part of the book referenced as the exhortation. Um, it's rather lengthy in and of itself. I could go through it. In fact, I, I guess I might need to do a part six because there's quite a bit in here. But I want to just, I, I think for right now, we're going to complete this as part five. Knowing that at some point I'm going to come back through and do a bonus episode having to do with the exhortation. I, I think I've laid all the groundwork, given their arguments, and now put it out there. So now the idea is, what are you going to do? I've done my part to educate you on what this is about, what the importance of this is, how this is honestly one of the underlying basic understandings that the founding generation used when creating the Constitution. The idea of federalism comes out of this, the idea of separation of powers, the idea of a check and balance, the idea that nobody is above the law. When they created the Constitution, the Constitution was to be the supreme law of the land, the final arbitrator, if you will, of these written rules. There was a method of which to change it or update it, so long as it doesn't contradict or violate the earlier portion. Yet we've done just that. So, as I look at wrapping this up, let me just say, the book's not an easy read. It's written in a style that is not common today. Um, it's kind of flowery. It's, uh, it's deep at times. It's, it's supposed to be educational. It's supposed to be understood at a level that if you understand the language being used, probably not a super highly educated person is required to read this. Now, whether or not this is equivalent to your average daily newspaper or an article on the internet, I can't say. But I would say that you probably don't need the college degree to read through this, to understand what's going on here. 
the whole purpose of this at this time was to basically tell the king, the Holy Roman Emperor, if you will, you have usurped authority that does not belong to you. You have violated our rights. We are appealing to this prince and we are basically telling him he has the authority because God gave it to him to interpose himself between you and your tyrannical behaviors and we're asking him to protect us and intercede in our behalf and we're giving him good justification of why he can do that and why he should feel good about doing it. Likewise, I would say this has a direct application for what's going on today, what's happened in the last year. And unfortunately, because this topic, this issue is not spoken of very highly because nullification and interposition have been vilified and quite frankly ignored by large segments of our society based on the premise that it was used during the Civil War to do terrible things when in in fact the reality is that those very things were used both prior to, during, and after by various sides for various reasons which ultimately gave us better outcome than what occurred during the War of Southern Secession when they got into a battle with the northern portion of the country and they killed over a half a million people to preserve a union that most didn't even really want. They were driven to that. I can't defend either side. I think they're both wrong. One side might be more wrong than the other. That's largely irrelevant. The issue is, the outcome of that, they have taken and removed this doctrine, this teaching from the general public. And they used that atrocity of 170 years ago to prove it out. And then somehow make it okay that something that happened 161 or 160 years ago is somehow this is okay. Whereas 170 years ago, this was all understood, known, basic information. Again, what is their motivation? What do they want? I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm telling you how to think about it to understand it, pointing you in direction so that you can learn more, get your education, feel comfortable with the subject matter, understand what you think, and be prepared to defend it. Hopefully we'll not get to the point where you have to defend it to the death, but it's happened before. One of my uh, favorite bands references a phraseology that persecution only makes us grow. The sweet irony in this is this was written by a bunch of Lutherans who were basically under siege by the Holy Roman Empire under the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope who were trying to crush them and drive them out. Yet, they survived. and They're still around. They spawned many more reformists, many more Protestant Factions exist. Right or wrong, they are there. And this is one of the buttressing uh, 
documents that made that happen. This is what, in, in part, gave us the country we live in. Now, I know there are some of you out there that think that I'm very hard on our government, that, that I have a negative view, and I, I don't look at it that way. The thing you love most is the thing you're toughest on. The thing you have the most concern is the thing that you watch over and try to hold accountable. Much like our team that goes down to Austin, we can be upset with them. We can be disappointed in them, but they're still our team. Much like many other things that go on in your life, family is family. We all make sacrifices to protect those that we love. Some of us make bigger sacrifices than others. Some of us uh, don't have to make sacrifices because of other people's sacrifice. But nobody should be made to feel guilty for a choice they made. Ultimately, the idea is we're protecting everybody's liberty. Because the most important liberty to protect is that is the freedom to worship how you see fit. Now, the Lutherans were most concerned about the way they worshipped Jesus Christ in relation to their differences between the, them, the Catholic Church, and the various other factions that have basically cut a deal to be left alone. But if we fast forward 500 years, that application still exists. We don't wish to stamp out those that worship in a different way. Now, we may seek to convince them. We may tell them, hey, you're praying to the wrong God or you're mm, doing something here that is in direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches, but we don't seek to kill them. We don't seek to subjugate them. We don't seek to ruin them. For that is not the way that a Christian should behave. Regardless of what's happened a couple hundred years ago, we just choose not to live like that now. Well, uh, that was part five. This uh, was a little bit longer than I originally intended, but I, I just wanted to get it out there. I wanted to finish this up. Uh, like I said, I may show up later on and do a bonus episode on the wrap-up of this, if you will, but I really wanted to get to those three arguments. And I think we've done a good job of copying it from a written text to a simple way to understand it with plenty of good quotes, if you will. This is episode 143. This is According to Callus, and I will see you on the other side.